Good morning. Hope you all are having a great day so far on this beautiful spring morning. We're going to talk a little bit about how Jesus answered questions and look at some of the questions that Jesus was asked. And anytime I think about questions, I, I do think about children because children ask a lot of questions. I mean, they're always asking why, uh, particularly you get in that two and three and four year old stage that everything is why, right? Uh, but children ask a lot of questions, and they ask a lot of, of good and interesting questions. Uh, some of the ones that I've heard, and I'm not going to say whether these are from my own children or not, but many of them may be. Um, one is, in the olden days, was everything black and white? Uh, why do I have two eyes if I only see one thing? Why did swear words get invented if we're not allowed to say them? I think that's a good question. I think we should, we should think about that one more. Uh, how did people make the first tools if they didn't have any tools? And uh, this famous one, why don't crabs have eyebrows? <laughs> Those are all good questions, except perhaps that last one. I'm not sure that's a great question. Uh, and Children ask questions from the motive of curiosity, just wanting to know things, just curious about the world around them. That's their motivation. But sometimes people have different motivations, don't they, when they're asking questions. Sometimes people ask you a question to test you. Sometimes that's a good thing in school. Uh, sometimes it's not such a good thing. They're just trying to test your, your knowledge, whether you know your stuff. Uh, others ask to embarrass or humiliate a person. Some to poke fun or to trick or to entangle a person. Many times when people ask questions of our Lord Jesus, it was for that purpose. It was improper motivations. And I think it's interesting as we look at some of the questions that Jesus was asked and how he answered them, some of the lessons we can learn from that. Sometimes he answered them. Sometimes he didn't answer them. Sometimes he answered them with a parable. And then occasionally he answered them with a question, right? Now, Jesus could not be tricked by any questions. We know that because he knew the questioner's heart. He already knew. For instance, when we look at Luke 5 and verses 22 through 24, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? When Jesus perceived their thoughts... He answered them, why do you question in your hearts, right? Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew what questions they were asking in their own minds. And he calls them out and says, why do you think this way, right? He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. He was showing that he did have the authority to forgive sins, and it was proven through the miracle using God's power. He knew that they couldn't see with their eyes that those sins were forgiven, but they could see the confirmation through the miracle. So let's take a look at some of these questions that Jesus was asked and how he dealt with these different situations. The first one of those I want to look at is the question of authority. Before we get to that, though, let's look at Mark chapter 11. Let's look at what Jesus was doing right before this question is asked of him. We're in Mark chapter 11, and we start looking at verses 12 through 14. And we see that he has caused the fruitless fig tree to wither. We get down to verses 15 to 17, and he has cleansed the temple. He has gone into the temple and chased out the money changers and those who were selling uh, the different sacrifices and were charging ridiculous prices. He has cleansed the temple. Their reaction to that was not too good. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 18. It says, And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. He had just cleansed the temple, and their reaction was to destroy him, because he has threatened their livelihood. They were making money and receiving their power from those people who were exchanging money and selling the sacrifices. And what do they ask him right after that? They come and they say, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gives you the authority to do them? Now, there's nothing wrong with those questions. Those are good questions. And in fact, I would say that it would be a good thing if religious people throughout our society would apply those questions to what they are doing on a daily basis. By what authority are you doing some of these things? And who gave you that authority? Right, Because we are to do things through the authority of the Scriptures. And who gave us that? The Lord. We are doing the Lord's work when we follow what's in the Scripture. And that's where we are to get our authority. And that's where Jesus got His authority too, was from the Lord. Jesus knew that there is something wrong, not with the question that they're asking, but with, but with the questioner's hearts, right? These are people who are seeking to destroy him, to kill him. And they're successful in that, eventually, right? So how does he answer them in verse 29? He says, I will ask you a question, right? If you answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I like how he puts it that. Answer me. Little thing. Little emphasis on it. He says, all right, you ask me a question, I'll tell you, but you have to answer my question first. And he, he 
asked them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And this causes them to be perplexed. They, they kind of meet and they say, okay, what are we going to say? Because if we say from heaven, then he'll say, then why didn't you believe it? He was preparing the way for me. And if we say it's from man, we're afraid of the people because all the people recognize that John was a prophet and he's from God. So what do they answer? It says uh, in, I think it's verse 33, they answered, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus didn't object to telling them the source of his power and authority, but he points out the fact that if he answered them truthfully, they would say he's blaspheming and they would take him to kill him, right? They would probably cause a riot and they would stone him to death. But he points out the same problem to them in John's doctrine and the fact that his doctrine is not his own. It comes from God who sent him. And in John 9, 4, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Well, they were very critical of Jesus' work and they were trying to find fault with everything that he did, even when he did wonderful deeds, when he healed on the Sabbath thereafter him, right? Sometimes even stirring up the people against him, and they didn't ask him because they wanted information, because they were sincere. They asked him because their motivations were to catch him and kill him. And we can learn valuable lessons from how he dealt with that situation. Jesus answered a question with a question, why should you let your opponent do all the questioning, putting you on the defense all of the time? Instead, ask him or her why they believe what they believe and by what authority are they doing those things. Another question that gets asked of Jesus fairly often is, is it lawful to do something? There's at least three times in his ministry where he was asked, is it lawful uh, to do these things? One time dealing with the government, one time it's dealing with marriage, and one time with the day of worship. So let's take a look at these three briefly. So the enemies of God's people often try to show that whoever God's people were at this time is the Jews, now it's the Christians, that we are opposed to the government that we are somehow unlawful, that we are breaking the law so that they can bring us before civil authorities and cause trouble. This has been a way that Christians have been persecuted for centuries and centuries. But it didn't start even in the age of Christianity. It started in the Old Testament. We see it over and over. We see the wicked Haman does this during uh, the time of Esther, when she was queen, he says to the king, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business." that they may put it into the king's treasuries. He was upset with the Jews, and he wanted them to be destroyed. So he, he 
points out, look, these are unlawful people. They're not good citizens of your kingdom. And you should destroy them, and I'll pay you to destroy them. And that causes that whole problem that Esther has to deal with uh, in the book of Esther. In Acts 17.7, we see that unbelieving Jews are accusing Christians of being disloyal to Caesar when they cried to the rulers of the city. They said they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. In Matthew 22, 15-22, we read, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along real well, by the way. But, uh, you know, times of war, they say, make strange bedfellows. Well, that's the case here. They're going to war with Jesus. And so they're going to ally with anyone who is on the same side as them regarding Jesus. And they said, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. The, the Greek there... It's not talking about, you're not swayed by somebody who looks like uh, Brad Pitt or something like that. It's talking about faces. The, the, the Greek there says you're not swayed by anyone's face. In other words, you know, you're not going to bow down to Caesar just because he's Caesar. Uh, it's an interesting play on words in the Greek because of how Jesus answers them. They say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. So this was a question uh, in that time period. Sometimes it's a question now, right? Our government sometimes does things that are not very Christian-like, and yet we pay taxes because we are to be under our government. But it says in verse 18, Jesus was aware of their malice and said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. So he literally asked them to see one of Caesar's coins. And he says, they brought it to him. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness, whose face is on this coin? They just said, we know you don't, you don't give any priority to face, anybody's face. And he says, well, whose face is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Literally talking about their faces. God made all of us, and we're to give our lives over to him. And when they heard it, they were impressed. They marveled, it says, and they left him and went away. No one could have misunderstood Jesus' answer right there, could they? Nobody could say, well, Jesus told us not to pay taxes to Caesar. No, he said just the opposite, right? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And yet, later, he was misrepresented in Luke 23.2, they begin to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So even though Jesus gave the perfect answer and they went away marveling at his answer to them because he could not be trapped by their trickery, they just misrepresent what he says. In the trial, they're trying to say, no, he's guilty of saying we should rise up against Caesar and not even pay taxes. In Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees ask about marriage. Now, why did they do that? Well, if you read in Matthew 19, in verse 3, it starts out and says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. They are testing him 
asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them both male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they press him, and they say, Okay, well, you got the question wrong. You answered it incorrectly. So we got you now. He said, Why did Moses then command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said, Then because of your hardness of heart, he turns it around on them. And he says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. Now in today's world, with all the distorted views we have of, of marriage and free choice and all of these things, it's, it's obvious that many people are being divorced for every cause and they don't follow what the Bible teaches here. But it's all the more reason to listen to the doctrine of Christ. And we see how he turns it around on them and says, it's, you didn't catch me in the wrong answer. It's because of your hardness of heart and you're leaving what God has set up as a holy and pure thing. And then third, they question him about, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus lived under the law of Moses, the Mosaic period, and he was expected to observe the Sabbath, and he did. They, the law said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's Exodus 20 and verse 8. And Exodus 35, 2, there's a warning, whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. So they're trying to catch him doing work on the Sabbath. They want to find him in violation of this law. And there's precedence in number 15, Numbers 15, verses 32 through 36, there was a man who was collecting sticks on the Sabbath. He was doing work on the Sabbath. And they took him out and they stoned him because he was in violation of the law. They killed him for violating the law. And in Matthew 12, and verses 9 through 14, we find that Jesus is with the man with the withered hand. He says, he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? See, the, their motivations are, are written in the text. And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you'll get him out, right? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and he restored, healthy like the other. Though they objected to Jesus healing on the Sabbath, they themselves would have rescued a sheep, one of their sheep, if it fell into a pit. And he restores the man's hand, but the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how they might destroy him, how they might kill him. So he heals somebody, and they take counsel, how are we going to bring this man to death, to justice, right? Luke 13, 11 through 17, talks about another time where Jesus healed on the Sabbath. It says, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he carried her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant 
because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, he loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? In each of these cases, Jesus was accused of breaking the Sabbath and doing work on the Sabbath. Those who questioned his actions were insincere and trying to catch him. They didn't really want the truth. Those who don't want the truth, when they are presented with the truth, they either will not see it or they will reject it, often getting angry. I've, I've seen this many times when somebody does not want the truth. They are not sincere. When presented with the truth, their reaction is not a sincere reaction. It's anger and frustration because you will not accept their version of truth instead of the truth. The truth doesn't care what you think. The truth is just the truth, right? So we have to come towards the truth with pure hearts. We have to come with questions in our hearts that are sincere. We need to sincerely know. Another thing about those who were questioning Jesus is that they were often people of influence and power and high education. And Jesus takes a look at that. He doesn't care about the educational or social status of the people that are questioning him, the people that are coming to him. It was not a coincidence that Jesus was questioned by some of the most highly educated people of his day. Scribes, rulers, elders, lawyers, chief priests. That's how they're described. And they're looking for occasion occasion to entangle him. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees on a question about the resurrection. So these Pharisees then decided to try their hand at questioning him. And they choose a lawyer for the task. In Matthew 22, 34 through 40, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, lawyers are really good at questioning people, right? That's the whole, kind of one of the main focuses of their job. And he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus more than answers their question, doesn't he? They asked him which is the greatest. And he said, I'll tell you which one's the greatest and which one's the second greatest. And I'll tell you that upon those two, all the law rests. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is Luke ten twenty-five. And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor. And it's at that time that Jesus reveals to him the story of the Good Samaritan. He calls into question all of these uh, 
ideas of social status that they had. He talks about a priest and a Levite who pass the man by, but a Samaritan stops to help. And then he questions the lawyer and he says, which one of those three was the man's neighbor? Of course, the lawyer wants to get the answer right, so he says, well, the Samaritan was, right? And he says, you go and you do likewise. He says, you act like that Samaritan, not like the priest and the Levite. But questions are often brought from the motivation of this educational and social status. In John 7, we learn that Jesus was not able to walk amongst the Jews any longer because they were seeking to kill him. His brethren talked to him about whether he should even go to the feast. And there's a lot of question about whether Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and go to the feast. He does go. And in John 7, as he's going into the temple to teach, in verse 15 it says, The Jews therefore marvel, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. He is not, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He calls them out. He answers them, and he challenges the motivations that he knows that they are the elite They are self-righteous, and they are coming after him because they are jealous. The Jews were cliquish, and they wouldn't associate with anyone outside of their circle. Certainly not with sinners, certainly not with tax collectors, right? Jesus, who is sent to seek and save the lost, associated with both. And in fact, one of the apostles, Matthew, is called to be an apostle while he's at the tax booth. These are people that most Jews would not want to associate with Matthew because he was a tax collector. But in Matthew 9, verse 9 and following, it says, And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. He is eating with tax collectors, and sinners, right? And it says, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And what's Jesus' reply? When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In John 4 is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? Samaritan were a mixed race of Jews and Assyrians. And the pure Jews resented them. They would not allow them to help rebuild the temple. And in fact, their dislike was so great that when they were going to the festival, if they were in Galilee up north and they had to travel down south to Jerusalem, the most direct route was through Samaria. But they wouldn't go that way. They would go all the way around through a more dangerous and mountainous region just to avoid having to deal with Samaritans. But Jesus, with the woman 
at the well not only travels through there, not only speaks to her, but has a conversation with her. And John 4 and verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She recognizes that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He asks her a small favor to break the ice, right? She's not expecting him to talk to her at all. Other questions are then asked of him, and he answers her. And the woman eventually believes that he is the Messiah, and she brings others to him. That's the reaction of a true, sincere questioner. The gospel does not know social barriers. It doesn't know educational barriers. It doesn't know color lines. It does not prefer rich people over poor people. The gospel is for everyone. And that's what Jesus did. He went to those who were sick as the great physician. Finally, we talk about the sincere questioner. I really love this story, and I know I've probably mentioned it before since I've been teaching and preaching here uh, over this year. But I love the story of Nicodemus. This is a man who is a good man, he's a Pharisee, he has good intentions, and he is a truth seeker. Now, he gives a real compliment to Jesus in John 3, verses 1 and following. He is not trying to trap Jesus. He says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Not only is he a Pharisee, he's one of the elite Pharisees. This man came to Jesus By night, he's probably a little bit afraid to approach Jesus. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's giving him a true compliment. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus talks to him on a high level because he has come to him as a true truth seeker. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He doesn't get it, right? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is, is amazed at this answer, right? It's a deep answer that's going to stick with him for a while. He's going to be thinking about this. It says, how can these things be? That's his answer. And he leaves Nicodemus wondering, pondering these things. And the more that Nicodemus does, we get three little touches about him throughout the book of John. This is the first one. But we can see Jesus' answer working on Nicodemus. 
In John 7.50, we see him questioning those who are seeking to destroy Jesus. He's asking about their motivations, right? In in 7 and verse 50, he says, Nicodemus, and just so we're clear, it's the same one, the one who came to him by night and who was one of them. He's included in this group that is seeking to destroy Jesus. He said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They question him. So he calls them into question now. He's asking them the question, if you're not being fair here, this is not how we judge people. And and I've spoken to Jesus, and he's given me this answer that I've been thinking about. And they say, what, are you one of his followers too, right? They're, They're trying to cast fear on him. They're seeking to destroy Jesus. And so, all right, do you want to be lumped in with this Jesus? And then the next time we see Nicodemus is at the cross. We see him in John 19, verses 39 and following. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, he's with Joseph of Arimathea here, who it says was a secret follower of Jesus because of fear of the Jews. That's verse 38, the verse before the one I read. When a truth seeker questions Jesus, the answer is going to lead him to the death, burial, and eventually the resurrection of Jesus. An honest and open heart approaching Jesus and questioning things is going to be convinced. And I want you to think about, this is a a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, it is almost the Sabbath. You'll, you'll remember that's why they broke the legs of the thieves, but Jesus was already dead because they want to take care of this before the Sabbath. It's not just the Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. It's the Passover, the most important Sabbath of the year. He is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, and it's the day of preparation. And he's going to touch a dead body. He's going to carry 75 pounds. It's, it's a lot of weight of spices to cover the body. After touching the dead body, he would be unclean for seven days. He would now no longer be able to participate in the Passover feast. It cost him something to do this. And it was extremely dangerous. It was dangerous on multiple levels. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and asks him for permission to take the body. It's dangerous on the Roman level. But it's also dangerous because he's going to be questioned about this by the Jews. Now, we don't see him anymore. We don't know what became of Nicodemus. But we know that he was a sincere questioner, and we see him taking the body of Jesus, preparing it for and burying the body in the tomb. Because a true seeker is going to be led to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's going to be led to the gospel. 
So it's time now to ask ourselves these same types of questions. What are our motivations? Are we going towards Jesus with a pure heart? Do we just want to know the truth, how we can be saved from our sins? How is your heart this morning? What condition is your soul in this morning? Are you a truth seeker? Because if you are, you'll be led to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 6. We enact that through baptism by command. Jesus himself commanded us to believe and be baptized for the remission of our sins. If you have not done that, there is no better time than right now. Every time you see someone obey the gospel in the New Testament, every time they do it right then. They don't wait. Anytime they wait, there's never a record of them later obeying the gospel. The time is now. If you have done that, but you've fallen away, you've fallen back into sin, we would love for you to come back and be back on the path. You do that through confession of sin, repentance, and prayer. If either of those is the case for you this morning, come as we stand and sing.